Well, this morning we continue in our series. We've been for some time now in a series on calling. And as you've noticed, we haven't been focusing on uh, what we normally think about whenever we hear the word calling. We normally think specifically of uh, what job am I to do, uh, what vocation am I to be called to, whom am I to marry, where am I to live, all of the normal things that tend to preoccupy our discussion as we call about as we talk about calling we've rather wanted to think of calling more broadly and really the whole series has been a way at getting at talking about what is this life that we've been called to what is the christian life to look like what does god intend for our lives how then should we live really has been what the series has been all about we continue this morning in that series, and this morning we're going to talk about holiness. We're going to talk about a life of holiness as what God has called us to. Now, I think even the very word, the term holiness, carries a lot of, perhaps, baggage for us. Um, I think we tend to think of holiness in the same way that we think about flossing our teeth. I'm sure that's obvious to you, but let me help you to try to understand what I mean by that. I've always thought that flossing your teeth is kind of the thing that dentists always say, but nobody really ever does. Uh, in the previous service, there was one person that admitted they actually floss their teeth, but I, I kind of view it as one of these things that we all look at and we say, yeah, that'd be great if I could get around to it, but I really don't. I, you know, who has the time for it? You know, I brush my teeth every day. I do a good bit. But, you know, that's really for the super teeth kind of people, you know. It's for the really diligent people. It, it's not really crucial. You know, it's a thing that dentists talk about a lot. You know, every time I go to the dentist, I know there's going to be this point in the checkup where he'll take his glasses off and, you know, the mood kind of changes and he wants to talk about flossing and... I put my head down and act contrite and guilty, and he lectures me, but we both have an understanding. I'm not going to floss my teeth. Isn't this the way it is for every dentist, I could imagine? Right? I think this is how we tend to think about holiness, at least in our circles, in our branch of the body of Christ. We tend to think about holiness as, yeah, that's a great thing, and maybe someday I'll get around to it, and... There's probably some super-Christians out there that really make it their business to pursue holiness in their life, but it's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing, right? I mean, I go to the dentist. I, 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 you know, I do the basics of Christianity. Um, it's kind of an add-on. It's kind of an extra. Maybe one day I'll get around to it, but is it really that necessary? I think we tend to think about holiness in that way so often we tend to think I've come to Christ I belong to him but as far as how I live and pursuing transformation in my life well maybe I'll get to it at some point but that's what, exactly what we're looking at in our passage this morning as the writer of Hebrews is calling us is summoning us is encouraging us with all fullness of heart to pursue a life of holiness 
as it is God's will for our life. It's what He intends for us, for us to be changed and transformed into the image of Christ. It's not just a sideshow of salvation and what God is up to in our life, but rather it is at the very core of what He intends to do in our life. That's what we'll see in our passage. We'll notice three things. First of all, the call to holiness. Second of all, we'll see the pursuit of holiness. What does it look like? He kind of gives us a, a picture here, a metaphor for it. And then we'll ask, how does this apply to our lives? So let's look at our passage together. I want to start at the end and work our way back. So I want to start at verse 14. Well, I think in verse 14, it's a verse where it's very plain and clear how God feels about this idea of holiness in our life. It's very clear. There's no way of getting around it. There's no tricky way of saying, well, yeah, but it really means this. Look at what he says in verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, this idea of holiness uh, is a concept. It's kind of a churchy word, a religious term, and for some of us, it might have a negative connotation. Kind of like, you know, that doesn't sound fun at all. Kind of like a, you know, a Puritan kind of mindset to it. That basically holiness is an avoiding of any kind of fun in the world. Oftentimes we tend to think of holiness that way. Think of the thing that you least want to do, and that's probably holiness. We often think in our lives. But what is holiness? What does this mean? Well, at its deepest root, it simply means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be set apart from the world, discernible from the world. It's, it's a characteristic of God. In fact, it is the most common attribute of God described in the Scriptures. It is a description of God, that He is holy, that He is set apart, that He is completely different from everything in His creation. And so for those who are in relationship with this holy God, we are called to, to be set apart, to be different. It also refers to the way that we live. It has deeply moral and ethical implications in it. It means to be morally upright, to be a person of righteousness, to be one who keeps the commands of the Lord and is the kind of person that He has called us to be. And in Scripture, holiness is a very beautiful thing. Now, in this, the word translated holiness here, it can also be translated as to sanctify or sanctification. Another term that is used a great deal in the New Testament. And it means almost the same thing, because sanctify means to set something apart, for it to be different and separate. And as we use that term sanctification, we see that in Scripture, most often it's referring to the process in our lives that God does, His work in our life as He is setting us apart from the world. It's that process in our life where He is actually changing us and transforming us, making us holy, uh, transforming our character, taking us from darkness and into light. And it is a process that lasts throughout our life. Now we tend to do to put far more emphasis on justification. 
And justification is a wonderful thing that Scripture always also talks about a great deal. But they're different. It's very important to see the differences between justification and sanctification. Now, justification is not a process. It is an act. And it is something that God entirely does on His own in a moment. Justification is that reality that whenever one has saving faith in Christ, whenever they put their hopes and their trust in what Christ has done on their behalf, God looks on the guilty sinner and He declares them righteous. It's a declaration. It's a, a legal reality. It is God looking on us and counting us as righteous. Declaring us to be righteous. And that's what happens whenever one enters into union with Christ. At that moment, we are declared righteous. This tends to be far more of our focus. But you see, Scripture puts justification and sanctification right alongside one another. In other words, they, they go together. In fact, salvation is not just to be declared righteous, justification. Salvation also includes God actually making us righteous. It's His intention not just to declare us righteous, to, but to make us so, to actually transform us into the image of Christ. This is His will for our life. This is His calling in our life. This is what He is up to in our lives. And so, so often, we focus so much on justification that we exclude sanctification. They're not to be separated. They go together. Sanctification is always flowing from our realization of our being righteous in Christ. But yet, we are called to participate with God in this work in our life. And that's what we see in this verse here. Now, there are two phrases that I think really jump out in this one verse. I think especially for us that kind of knock us back and correct some of the misconceptions that we have. The first one is this. Right off the bat in verse 14, he says, Make every effort. Now, effort is not a word we like too much whenever we're talking about God and our relationship with Him. And one of the reasons is because we love grace. We emphasize grace. And we tend to think that grace is opposed to effort. But it's not. Grace is opposed to earning. Categorically. Without question. You know, by God's grace, we are saved, we are declared righteous, and we are transformed. And it is entirely His work by grace. You can never earn it. It's a gift. It's a pure gift. But in sanctification, He calls on us to participate with Him to respond to Him, to pursue Him. We have a part to play in it, and it's not a passive part. Notice again the language that he uses. Make every effort. Now think for a minute. What are the areas of your life that you make every effort? There, there are many, right? I mean, for some of us, it's going after that promotion in our life. We make every effort. We put everything we have into advancing in our career. Perhaps it's in the raising of your children or in your schoolwork or whatever it might be. There are areas in your life where you are making every effort. The writer of Hebrews is saying in the same way that you pursue those things, we are to pursue holiness to the same if not a greater degree of effort and passion in our lives. You see, change is hard work. 
It's hard to change. It's, and that's why so seldom do we change, because it is so difficult to change. It's so difficult for patterns and uh, lies that we believe and habits that we have formed in our life to change these things is incredibly hard. Now, this makes total common sense in so many areas of our life, right? You know, if, if I'm wanting to get a buff body, you know, if I'm wanting to work on my six-pack, I know I can't do that by going to the gym once or twice a month. You know, some of you see me in the gym, and I'm only there like one, once or twice a month, and there's no results. Newsflash. But we all know this. If you really want to change the way you look, your body, it takes an enormous amount of effort. The same is true with almost any area of life. If you want to build a business, if you want to uh, train someone for some task, change involves a great deal of effort. And it's one of the main things I think this speaks to us because sometimes we think that change is a passive thing. We tend to think that all we have to do is believe something intellectually and that we're just going to magically be changed in our lives. But it's just not what Scripture says. In fact, it calls on us to make every effort in going after becoming like Christ, pursuing holiness in our life. And there's another phrase that I think really stands out in this verse. And it's the second part of the verse where it says this, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now that's a strong statement. That ought to give us some pause. That ought to lead us to take a look at our life. It's a strong statement. He is not saying that holiness is how we see the Lord or that holiness is a means to seeing the Lord. Holiness is a means to being saved. He's not saying that at all because the whole book of Hebrews, in fact, the whole Bible, is all about how you cannot, based upon what you do, ever merit acceptance before God entirely a gift. Pure grace. So it's not saying that. It's not saying that holiness is how we see the Lord. But it is saying that holiness is a necessary fruit of salvation. It must flow. In fact, just like the fruit on a tree, how do you know what kind of tree it is? What kind of fruit is produced? This kind of metaphor is used throughout Scripture. So that's what he's speaking to here. He's saying, don't think if you believe something in your head, but yet your life is not changed, if you're not growing in holiness, do not think you will see the holy God. And if you think about it, why would you want to if you care nothing about holiness? The picture that we get of God throughout Scripture, anytime anyone encounters Him, especially in His heavenly throne room, the scene is usually the same. Think, for instance, of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 as he's ushered into the heavenly throne room, and he comes in and he sees the king seated upon his throne. And the train of his robe fills the whole temple. And there's these mighty creatures that are surrounding him, and they're, they're just constantly worshiping him, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And at the power of their voices declaring his holiness, the whole place is shaking. And the smoke is filling the temple. Smoke was a... a an Old Testament image of God's glory and presence. And Isaiah comes into and encounters 
the holy God seated upon His throne, and His reaction is the same that almost every other person in Scripture is whenever they encounter the living God. He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. I love that. It's a reaction. He didn't didn't say, I need to say this. He sees the holiness of God. He's immediately struck with how different He is. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He's immediately struck with how different He is than God. That, That sense of holiness, different and set apart. And what does God do? He sends an angel to take a coal from the altar and touches his lips and cleanses them. Then he is prepared to respond to the Lord, to be in his presence. You care nothing about holiness. If there's no appeal in it to you, why would you want to be there in his presence? Why would you want to look on his holiness if it's not a delightful reality for you? And that's what he's saying. Don't be deceived. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Because our God is holy, we too must be holy. So that's a picture of the call in our life, that God calls us to be holy. But then as we move back towards the beginning of the chapter, we see a picture of what does the pursuit of holiness look like. He gives us an athletic metaphor, which I particularly appreciate. Did you notice that here? He's playing on this metaphor of a race, uh, of a stadium, of a great athletic competition to give us a picture of what the Christian life is to look like, what a life of pursuing holiness is to look like. It's like a race. It's like a race that we're running with a beginning and an end. Notice just at verse uh, 1, chapter 12, verse 1, where he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now here he's showing us uh, that there is a crowd that is watching. Okay, In a minute we'll see how there's a race that we're called to and finally that there's a champion at the end. All elements of this picture of a great athletic metaphor. But the very first word that he puts here is therefore. And anytime you run into therefore in the scripture, you should ask, what is therefore therefore? Right? It's, it's a, a word that connects you to a previous thought. So he's drawing from the previous chapter. If you know anything about the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 is this, it's been called the hall of faith, where it's uh, lifting up the lives of the great heroes of the faith. Men like Noah and Abraham and Moses, these men who ran the race who finished well, these men who walked away uh, from everything that the world had to offer because they were looking ahead to a greater reward. And what happens here in our passage is that the writer says, in this race, there is a crowd. The people that, that he has just shown us, uh, the realities about their life, he shows us here, they're watching You're not alone. It's a packed house. This race that you're running, all of the saints that have gone before you, that have finished their race, they're looking on to your life. They're watching. They're cheering you on. They're hoping for you to finish because as you finish, their finishing becomes complete. You're connected to them in some 
mysterious reality, the communion of the saints that spans all of time. And not only are they simply spectators, but they're also those who are living examples and witnesses to us. It's kind of like being in a, a stadium and they'll, you know, how jerseys are retired and they'll hang jerseys throughout and banners throughout uh, a stadium. You see, you do that to remind you of those who have gone before you and the way that they went about it, the way that they finished well. And that's the picture here. They're looking on. They're cheering us. But they're also bearing witness through their lives. You can finish as well. You can make it to the end. You can imitate their faith of having a hope in a future glory that will carry you through. You know, there's something about home field advantage. Covenant basketball team certainly knows that, right? Yesterday, I don't know if you know this, but Covenant basketball just reached a milestone. They just reached 500. For the first time, and I don't know how long, how it could tell us. And yesterday they had their last home game. It was senior night. And as Kyle wrote in this email to everyone recapping the game, he said, I couldn't have scripted it any better. It's a huge milestone. But if you followed Covenant basketball this year at all, one of the things you've probably learned is they're tough at home. They're scrappy at home. They're, they're mean at home. Don't go in there. That's their house, Right? That's often the case, right? Is that you play a little bit better at home. If you've ever uh, been involved in athletics at all, you know the difference between a game and practice, right? You know that whenever there's a crowd cheering you on, there's a little something extra in the tank. There's a, a little something extra that moves you ahead. You see, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. You see, in this life that we're living, he wants you to see... You're not alone. You're not on some deserted road somewhere running a race by yourself. No, He puts you right in the middle of the stadium. And all of the saints before us are looking on, having accomplished and finished the race so well in their own lives, and they're cheering. And they're saying, you can do it. And we're watching and we're hoping and we're urging you on. It adds a little something extra to this race, I do believe. So there's a crowd. It's a full house. But then also, look at how he describes this life as a race. Second part of verse 1. He says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See, right here, he is comparing to this life, comparing it to a race. It is a race that has been marked out for us. It is a race that has a beginning whenever we come to Christ. It's a race that has an end whenever we finish and we go to be with Him or He comes to be with us. That is the finish line. And what happens in between is so very crucial. It's a long race. It's like a marathon. It's not like a sprint. Sometimes in the Christian life, we start off with a lot of fervor, with a lot of zeal, and a lot of excitement. But because we don't realize it's a marathon and not a sprint, we can give out. You see, right here he says, let us run the race with perseverance. Some of your translations say endurance. See, that's what's required in this race. 
in this life that we are called to is long. It's like a marathon. There's so many hardships. There's so many difficulties along the way. You've got to have the wrong, finish the race kind of perspective in order to make it to the end. But there's something else to note about this race. That is, there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of things that can throw you off. Did you notice that? He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. If you watch the Olympics this past summer, one of the things you probably noticed with all of the different athletes and all of the different sports is that, you know, they had funny little outfits they wear for each different event, you know. Um, or even take the swimmers, for instance. These swimmers, they shave all the body hair off of their body. And as I think about that, I'm like, I'm not sure how much just body hair would slow you down in the water. But you see, for them, they're like, anything that might slow me down, I'm throwing it off. Right? There are even men there shaving their whole bodies, which is strange to me. But, and they got these little tiny swimsuits. And then you got these marathon runners that have their very little clothing on as well, these little shorts. And, uh, and you got these uh, the cyclists that have the aerodynamic suits and the aerodynamic hats. They're all doing this. Why? It's very easy to see. They don't want anything to hold them back in their race. They want to remove every hindrance possible so that in the running of their race, they can run it the best that they can so that nothing gets in their way, so that they can win, so that they can make it to the end. The writer of Hebrews is saying in the same way, in this race, it's filled with things that can possibly hinder you, with the opportunity for sin to entangle you. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's throw it off. Come on, we're running a race where we want to run it as best we can. We want to make every effort it's so one of the most important things to do is to see what is hindering you. What's entangling you? What could possibly entangle you? And let's throw it off. Crucial in running the race. But then finally, there's a third thing to see in this picture. And that is a champion at the end. This is really the most important part of how we run this race. Verse 2. Let us... Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, this is the most crucial part of how we run the race. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got to fix your eyes upon Him, the one who's finished on our behalf. The Greek word here that is translated as author is archegos. And I think a better translation of it in this passage is champion. In fact, it seems to fit better with the metaphor here. Archegos is what, in the ancient Olympic Games, that no doubt the writer of Hebrews is drawing on as a metaphor here, that as one would win a race and become champion, the whole stadium would cheer, R.K. Goss, R.K. Goss. You see, that's what he's drawing on here. 
He's saying, fix your eyes on the champion. Your champion. The one who has lived the life that you are presently living and he's known every hardship that you could ever face. He knows every temptation. In fact, the things that he went through far eclipse anything that we have to face. And you know what he did? He finished. He won the race. He received the victor's crown. He destroyed death on your behalf. He has run this race. He is our example. He's the one that we look to. He's also the one that empowers us to run. Because you see, He's not just one that we're looking at to look at their example. He's one that we're in union with. One that is filling us by His Spirit. And as we focus upon Him and His work on our behalf, His scorning of the shame of the cross. The cross was known in the Roman world as the most shameful death that could be possible. So shameful was it that it was barred for any Roman citizen. It's a shameful death. But Jesus scorned that shame. He went to the cross. He laid down His life for the joy set before Him so that we might belong to Him. And you see, as we run this race, fixing our eyes upon Him, the one who's finished, the one who has run every part of the race that we have run, the one with whom we are in union with, the one who supplies us power and motivation, as we fix our eyes on Him, we are empowered to finish the race well. It's crucial in running the race. So, we've seen a call, we've seen a picture. What does this pursuit look like? Now, let's talk about how does this apply to us? I think this passage leads us to ask a number of questions, but I want to ask two questions for us. The first one is, what hinders you? What in your life hinders you from running the race? See, the reality is is that things can hinder that are not in, in and of themselves bad things. In fact it might be more of a danger for us to be hindered by good things in our life. There's so many good things that can become a hindrance. One of the things I think in our life that's in modern day society that's probably one of the biggest hindrances is busyness. It's a reality for every one of us. The pace of modern life is so very busy with so many good things. With with so many things to get to, so many things to do, so many things for our children to participate in, so many things that we fill our life with, and we're so very busy. And how often do you run into someone, you know, a friend perhaps, and you say, how you been? Normal greeting. And you hear, what do you always hear? So busy. I've been so busy. See, I think it's important for us to see Busyness can be a hindrance in the race. Here's another thing in our culture, entertainment. We live in a culture that is so saturated with entertainment that it is possible to spend all of your day being entertained. In fact, there was a book written a number of years ago talking about our society and it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. What a great way to describe our culture. It's so it's so easy for entertainment, which is a good thing, 
to be a distraction from our race. There can be so many pursuits in this life that are good things, but they become a hindrance to us. And so we've got to ask, what's in there? But then we, we also, along with that, got to say, okay, so what's in pain? You know, he says, let us throw off the sin that so easily entangles. So he's telling us a little something about sin. Sin in and of itself is deceitful. It always starts small. It always promises a whole lot, and it never shows its hand of what the cost will be. It always starts so small. But it always grows. And it always takes more. You know what it's like? It's like a runner that's running along and there's something in the path that entangles their feet. That they can't run. They end up falling on their face. That is such a great picture of what sin does in our lives. So what sin in your life entangles you? For some of us, it's habits, addictions. Things in our life that are eating our lunch. Perhaps for some of us, it's pornography, sexual addiction, substance addiction, alcohol, uh, some thing, some thought, some preoccupation that's ruling over our life. For many of us, that is the reality. And you are entangled in it. One of the things about addictions and running after those kind of things in our life is you're running after life. You're seeking life in some created thing. But here's the problem. It never delivers. And it masters you. See, God didn't make us to be mastered by things in creation. He made us to be mastered by God. And whenever we are mastered by something created, it dehumanizes us. It owns us. It entangles us. It holds us back in our race. For others of us, it might be a besetting sin like fear. Some anxiety, some persistent anxiety in your life, or anger, or unforgiveness in some relationship. You see how easily these things that are very real things in our life, how they can entangle, and how they can prevent us from running this race that we've been called to. The writer calls us to throw it off. Whatever's holding you back, let's throw it off. Let's encourage one another to throw those things off so that we can run together with endurance and with perseverance. But here's the second question. <clears throat> First one was, what hinders you? Second question is, are you running? Are you in the race? I think it's a pertinent question. For some of us, maybe we're not running that much at all. In fact, if you can't identify things in your life that are hindering you or entangling you, perhaps you're not running. But as you begin to run, let me tell you what will begin to happen. You're going to see hindrances everywhere. You're going to see possible entanglements everywhere. Are you running with perseverance? Are you fixing your eyes on Christ day by day? Are you seeking His face? Are you repenting of sin? Are you putting on righteousness in your life? Are you in the race at all? It's two important questions for us. So as we take this look at holiness, it's kind of the way that at least I tend to think about Flossen. 
But here's an interesting thing about my issue with flossing. About a month ago, I had a cavity. And it's a cavity they call a flossing cavity. Okay? I didn't know these existed. I don't remember this in the lectures, that you might get a cavity just not from flossing. But it's true. It happened to me. You know what I'm doing now? I'm flossing. I got a new race to run. Flossing. Never thought I would. You see, the, the reality is we have been called to run. We have been called to go after holiness in our lives with full passion, making every effort. But one of the clues, I think, in our passage of what is going to drive me to do this? What is going to cause me to hunger after holiness and righteousness like that? Notice what it was for Jesus. It says, for the joy set before Him. You see, for Jesus in His life, there was a future joy that compelled Him. You know, as He's living in life, He saw that there is something ahead. There's a greater joy that is of greater worth than the now, than all the things that this life has to offer. You see, for Jesus, He was looking ahead to His reward, just like the heroes of chapter 11. He was looking ahead to seeing God face to face. He was looking ahead to finishing His race. He was looking ahead to being united with His people that He would win through His race. You see, for us, if we really want to run, making every effort, we've got to begin to perceive the joy set before us. There is a joy in holiness that as you begin to pursue it, as you begin to die to yourself and repent of sin and go after it together as a people, there is a joy in it. There is a joy in knowing Christ more intimately than far outweighs any of the passing joys that this life offers. There is a joy that awaits us as we meet our champion at the end, as we are fully united to Christ at the end as we hear the well done of our Father. Imagine that. Finishing your race and your Heavenly Father saying, well done. See, that is the joy set before us. We've got to perceive the joy. May we, as a community of people, spur one another on in this race. In this race to finish well to meet our Savior.